Welcome to the IoT Idols podcast. I'm Ryan Cousins, co-founder and CEO of Critical. We help bring bleeding-edge technology products to market through a combination of hardware and software modules and professional engineering services. We believe every innovator has a powerful collection of experiences and knowledge that can help inspire others in their field. If you have a story you'd like to share, stick around at the end of the show and we'll explain how you can be a guest on one of our upcoming episodes. In just 15 to 20 minutes, you could be the next IoT Idol. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Welcome to another amazing episode of IoT Idols innovators to watch. And in this episode, no exception, we have an innovator that we enjoy watching. And we are so blessed and excited to have Jay Adelson join us from Scorbit. Jay, it's my welcome. pleasure to be here. Well, we're really excited to have you. And I know that the entire team at Critical Innovations has been working really hard on some amazing, amazing products. And you've put some of these products to work. And before we talk about that, though, I want to talk about what some of these projects are that uh, you've been working on and uh, you're excited about. Oh, there's so many. But I mean, the one that I'm currently working on is a company called Scorbit. And Scorbit is a, a way to connect both retro and modern pinball machines to the internet. And it exposes a whole layer of social connections and, and keeping scores and scoreboards and leaderboards like an Xbox Live, but for the real world. That's incredible. There's so much nostalgia with with pinball machines, I think. You know, growing up as a kid, my great uncle has had a pinball in his basement for as long as any of myself and my cousins can remember. And what last Christmas, we were talking about how cool it would be if, you know, we could all play that pinball machine, you know, from from our homes. And none of us would have thought that one day that there's individuals like yourself that that makes that dream a, a potential reality. And so, you know, what types of, of pinball machines are you bringing to, to the new century? Sure. Any, any pinball machine from pretty much the late seventies around 1976 until today, there are actually many pinball machines produced every year by many manufacturers. Um, and what we do is we, is we created hardware and a service, a platform where you put a device inside the machine, it doesn't matter its age, and it can pull data from the electronics in real time and then stream it up to the internet. So you can take any pinball machine mm -hmm. and literally insert the internet of things into it and, and bring it anywhere. That's right. I mean, now the, the purpose here is so that a person who's physically playing the game can then share their experience with other people and can ultimately, you know, unlock certain features that otherwise weren't available. You know, imagine finding an old game from the 1980s and actually unlocking a new achievement that you, you know, new goals and, and tying those goals into other things like the real world, like the venue you're playing in um, or challenging a friend to a match, you know, across the country. And, and these are the kinds of things that you can do when you take something old and connect it to this new platform. 
That's amazing, Jay. I was, uh, when I was 21, I was somehow inspired to take over the nation's oldest drive-in movie theater. And what I tell everybody is, is we resurrected this relic of Americana, this nostalgic, just relic of the film industry and really brought it into the digital age where it could become an icon. You know, it's just, it's, it lives and breathes and it's still here and it's preserved. And I see a lot of that in, in these experiences. We've seen arcades come and be this amazing venue for teenagers and children and, and adults to go and play and just, you know, it is, it's a new world. And so, you know, some of us might be thinking like, you know, are arcades dead? <laughs> yeah. You know, if you, if you just watch the, uh, over the, the course of the last few years, I think Seattle opened up 30 new pinball venues over the course of the last two years, San Francisco opened up 10, um, the manufacturers have seen record growth. It's interesting. Now, I'm not saying it's a big market, right? You know, we go after something that's fun and a really tight community. But just to give you a sense, in 2018, we saw an increase from previous years. Average was somewhere around like one to 2,000 people a year would go to uh, pinball tournaments. In 2018, over 120,000 people went to pinball tournaments. So it's a huge resurgence all over the world. And it's fueled largely by, by I think, a, a group of younger players who really are retreating from the screens and, and finding something new and something social to do. And I fully expect over the course of the next couple of years that resurgence to even amplify more. There, I... From my experiences in in the theater with with my own pinball machine, I think that as the world continues to just grow and innovate, so many of us, you know, it's it's not that the nostalgic parts are are dead; they just need to be recommunicated, and the communities need to be, you know, we just we didn't really adapt some of our communication, I think, sometimes, and you know, really allowing the world to sometimes kind of manipulate, you know, those those perfect things. Of, of of times of old and just it's not it's not changing them it's just allowing them to adapt to the clientele that we have and you know it's just it's exciting and so you know i'd love to learn about the technology you know that that drives this innovation because there's so much technology and and i mean you have a beautiful backdrop of uh, the machines around you and there's a lot of technology and a lot of innovation but i feel like some of those machines are machines that i've played on but i know that those aren't aren't the same machines no that's right i mean first of all you have to understand that that if you go back to the 70s all the way till today there are dozens of different platforms these games have been built on some of them are you know the first implementations of like 6800 processors and and the modern ones are effectively linux boxes with full stacks running on them and high definition video so so you have to figure out a way to come up with a piece of hardware that can speak the language of all of these different platforms from one device and i'm not going to lie that was that was challenging. 
So how do you how do you do that? How do you take you know a component and make it replicatable where you can you can scale? Because you know you're you're working so hard on on these projects that you know now you've you've got to make them accessible. You've got to make them talk almost. When my co-founders Ron Richards and Brian O'Neill, when we were walking through a, a arcade and pinball expo years ago, I think it was almost six years ago now. Uh, we were looking across all these games and I remember thinking, cause I'm an, I'm an internet guy for many years. I remember thinking this would be really cool if there was a way to solve this problem. And we were discussing this. And of course, you know, the first thing that hits you is just how incredibly difficult it will be to map out all of these different things and come up with some, some method. First of all, when something's hard, I love it. Hard things are fun, <laughs> you know? And I, and I realized that, sure, if I had two months to figure it out, you know, or a typical startup, you know, time frame, maybe that would be impossible. But I had, you know, I, I was running a venture firm at the time, and I was thinking about other things. So this became kind of a hobby and a project. And the three of us worked together on it for years, finding the common denominators that are true across all pinball machines. And I can tell you what they are. It's really simple. They all have a primary CPU, like a, like a central processor. Most of them, which is crazy, use the same one for like 30 years. No kidding. The second thing is displays. They all have some kind of display, whether it's a simple one, like a seven-segment display from the 70s, or a more advanced one, like some of the ones you see behind me that are, you know, TFD, you know like modern laptop displays. And so using that as sort of the core methodology, we found those common denominators and we needed to find a way to sort of process or sample that data in real time. And my venture firm invested was an IOT, you know, venture firm focusing on investing in, in devices. And we knew how hard this problem was, but that there were some technologies out there five years ago that were starting to show up that could solve our problems for us. So when you're looking at these machines, how do you break down, you know, and, and so many of us have these engineering minds, but so many tuning in are tuning in because this is, this is exciting. This is innovative. <laughs> so when you're going through all of these machines and, you know, to just somebody that, that plays pinball, you would think that mechanically they're they're Yeah, it makes sense. They've got flippers. They've got a ball you know, those would be the, the simple common denominators. How did you really break down what the common denominators were and then how to, to implement the processes? Well, I'll be honest, uh, it, it, it largely came out of a relationship with my son, Ben. Um, the two of us started restoring pinball machines together back in 2014. Uh, we were looking for something to to sort of share and and we got a junker from a garage up in northern california here and we found this machine that had beer stains and you know it was it was in terrible shape and we decided to strip it down to the wood and restore the cabinet restore the artwork restore the mechanicals the electronics and i wasn't particularly even though i'm a i'm an engineer of sorts i'm not an electric electronics engineer um, and so I had to learn, you know, how to repair these components. And it was sort of a rabbit hole that as we went down, 
you end up learning about how these pieces interact and then meet and understand the community of people that were already online on, on forums like Pinside um, that, that basically were, were sharing their last 50 years of knowledge with us and explaining to us, okay, this is how you fix a problem with the five volt bus on this machine from this era. And this is, you know, and so the two of us absorbed a lot of this information and that coincided with this, with this challenge of pulling scores and game data off the, off the games. And, you know, eventually it just kind of clicked and made sense how to do it. Now, I should tell you that when I told experts that I met online <laughs> about this problem, they said, well, we don't think, you know, a Raspberry Pi or a, or a traditional machine has the processing power to be able to do all of the various applications you want to run against this. So you really should consider some alternatives like an FPGA uh, as, a, as a way to sort of handle the effectively like a logic analyzer that you're building and, and the frame rate that you need to capture. I went online and I looked around to see if anybody in the pinball community knew anything about FPGAs. And I found this white paper written by this guy, Dr. Edward Chung. And he was a pinball nut. He posted it online about how he reverse engineered the displays of old pinball machines using an FPGA. So I wrote him an email and asked him if he'd help with the project. And after he was helping for a couple months, I finally Googled him. And it turns out he's one of the lead robotic scientists on NASA's ISS mission. And he was knighted by the <laughs> Dutch royalty for his work on Hubble Space Telescope. So we have a knighted rocket scientist helping us with our code base. It is crazy. <laughs> that is so crazy. I feel like that's one of those things. And I won't speak for you, Jay, but like, you know, I, all of us, right? There's so many communities online. And when we're looking to solve a problem, we it's the first place we naturally go. And all I can imagine is, you know, you find this and it's, you know, here's this holy grail of, you know, a key to open a door for you. And it's almost like a good thing that you hadn't searched him before because I wonder if you would be like, oh man, he doesn't want to work on, on this <laughs> pinball project with me. But like, how remarkable is that? Well, it, it was, it was, it was great because he had, he had been involved and he had played with FPGAs before other people really even knew about them. And his access to them at NASA had given him some early, cause it was expensive years ago to get into mm. this market. And that was one of his first areas of feedback to us was, well, it's going to cost you thousands of dollars per unit in order to actually do what you want. Surged by that at first, uh, but time had passed and the costs had come down. That's just so surreal. And so, as you all are kind of reverse engineering, you know these these machines and these displays. What's what's the next challenge in the project of completion? Well, you know, IoT in general, and, and this is often overlooked, is is partly the hardware challenge and and getting your bomb down and and working on on your schematics and your and your layouts, but a huge part of 
of our company is the infrastructure and the back end and the internet services that support all of these thousands of devices that are out there connected. It, it sounds easy to do because these devices have so much automation now and can run full stacks and, and there's all sorts of, uh, of localized platforms. But the API and the infrastructure that you have to build, that's an internet service. That's a pretty sophisticated and, and highly uh, uh, um, a challenging infrastructure to build. And not everybody has that background. And, and it's cheaper to do. The pieces are cheaper with things like Amazon Web Services and, and other kinds of integrated frameworks. But the knowledge and the time it takes to, to roll one of, these, one of these platforms out is, is not trivial. <laughs> I can't, did, when you first started this, this endeavor, because I mean, it, it was like anything amazing. It's a, it's a passion project that seems mm -hmm. like it kind of took on you know, a, a life of its own. I mean, did you have any sort of hypothesis on how long it would take? Did you even really know what you were setting out? You know, what this kind of end game, which I mean, we're always tinkering. There's never quite the end game, but did you know that like, how long this was going to take? You know, what some of these roadblocks that others haven't been able to figure out, you know, at, like where was that moment of like, oh, darn, I, you know, this, this might be the sticking point. Well, I think it's important to distinguish mission um, from sort of that inflection point where you decide it's a business. You know, I think, and I advise a lot of uh, entrepreneurs all the time about this, it, it's important to have that clear mission. And I think from the very beginning of the business, we knew exactly what we wanted to achieve. We wanted to be able to pull those scores and allow someone with an app to be able to check themselves into a machine, get achievements and so forth. Um, so that has never wavered. I think, I think that uh, the desire to do it as a full-time company probably didn't hit me and my co-founders until I would say 2017. And, and really what happened was <laughs> everyone was so tired of hearing me talk about this hobby project <laughs> that I really spent the majority of my time on um, that that it became a question, you know, for someone who I sit on the board of IoT companies, you know, how, can this be in fact a business? Is there a business here? Um, and and structure it and model it and and do the market research. And, and so I dove in. We all dove in. And what we learned is that there are problems that need to be solved, uh, both for the operators who manage machines remotely, but also the players who play at home. There are things that are of value in addition to just bells and whistles. And we would focus on those benefits and see what the value would be. And we spent a couple of years doing that analysis. And what we realized was, yes, you know, hardware costs something and we need to make sure that we pay for that fabrication. But it doesn't have to be a consumer scale business. It doesn't have to be tens of thousands of devices or hundreds or millions of devices in order for it to be a viable hardware business, which is, which is a little counterintuitive because most of the folks in the venture community in particular, you know, are very focused on these wide consumer markets. Hmm. In this case, the question is, is there a subscription model or a payments model or a revenue model that can support the infrastructure 
and the manufacturing at small, smaller levels, at a, at a niche community level? And the answer was, yes, there was. It's, it's not easy. <laughs> it's very, very difficult <laughs> to build that. But I think that once, once we had that, um, we started talking to others about it, including developers and engineers and, and investors. And it was very easy for us to sort of take those next steps and, and build a product and launch a product, by the way, mm. which is this whole other set of challenges. That's on top after the engineering's figured out. Now there's the commercialization strategy. Right. So yeah, that has its, its own obstacles coming up. That is just absolutely incredible. So with these machines, you know, how much added, you know, sensors, you know, in you know, yes, there's this, you know, component that allows the the connectivity, but how much additional work needs to go into the machines, you know, in terms of additional sensors or just other data uh, generating components? Well, the good news is, is that the computers that are inside these, these pinball machines already are already acting as, as similar to IoT devices in that they they have sensors built into them. They're collecting the data centrally. And really the way that you see that collection and aggregation of data is your score or your level you got to or your something that's unlocked. So that's already there. So what we had to do was develop something that um, was able to act like a logic analyzer in line in the signal path and then echo that back to the game. So from the from the standpoint of the device it's a just a very sophisticated logic analyzer that then um passes that back so we're not adding sensors to the game we're merely interpreting the sensors that are already there now the the exception to what i'm saying is we are a connected device so we have a radio right we have a wi-fi radio we also um will be handling payments and upcoming releases. And as you start to do things like that, there are different sensors that you add, you know, for example, NFC as a, as a component or other types of inputs. Our device actually has uh, four USB-C inputs that are used for other things besides the hardware probes that we manufacture for displays or CPUs. You could plug a camera in, for example. There's a whole like subsection of pinball streamers on Twitch that are, that are using our product in ways that we had never anticipated. And so there is some additional components, but nothing related to the way you play the game. I was blown away by the amount of pinball streamers I saw on Twitch. <laughs> you know, they've got, you know, the, the camera sensors and then, you know, they've got the camera on them and I've never been able to play that successfully, <laughs> I admit. But there is, there's, there's almost a, a beauty to watching your device being manipulated, you know, by, by others, you know, to me, like, that's just one of, you know, my favorite things, whether it's, you know, a, a film project or watching some of my musically driven friends, you know, watching, you know, a guitarist, you know, put, put that, that line in and then send it to the drummer and then watch them put their line in and kind of watch that work. And it's, it's a beautiful to kind of watch that happen in this world as well, because 
we're all collaborators at the end of the day. And a lot of us are, you know, we, we've got some childlike, you know, passions. And when we can really dive into those, uh, it's always successful. So what's what's next, you know, what's next for, for Scorbit in, in all of this? Well, we launched our product in September of 2020, uh, which is a difficult time to launch, you know, in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, not a lot of people going to arcades uh, during a pandemic, but but the reality is is that uh, you know, like any launch, you sort of you you walk before you run. We rolled it out. We had a lot of interest. Uh, you know, we sold our inventory, which was great, and we and we treated it like a, a pilot program. We rolled out an app on Android and iOS, which is challenging, and getting that done right. And we've iterated that. I think we. We've released something like 18 or 19 additional releases since the launch in September, um, which is a lot. You know, we're, we're, we're bug fixing, we're adding features. So I think going into next year, what we're trying to do is now that, we're, now that we have all this data from our connected devices out there and our customers and our support, we now have um, a better understanding of the personas that use our product. You know, whether it's a home user or a collector or an operator in an arcade, or it's somebody who's operating machines remotely, or there's, there's actually five or six different sort of customer categories that now that we understand those categories, we feed that data back into the product development process and we add features and prioritize features based on that data. And we iterate as fast as we can around that. You know, if, uh, someone told me once that if your if your product doesn't embarrass you, if you aren't ashamed of your product when they first get it, then you launched way too late. And mm-hmm. so, as these customers tell us, "This is clunky. This doesn't work." That's great for us because the last thing we want is to not hear anything back because it wasn't having any product market fit. So that's what we've been focused on. And I think the features that you'll see next year, we actually have. Um, in addition to the app, another product called Scorbit Vision, which is a web a set of web tools that allow you to display live scoreboards or leaderboards. And it was really interesting because when we first created it, we, did, we thought it was um, sort of a secondary product. But what we found as we launched it was that all of our customers are using it and they have found new ways of using leaderboards that we have never, I mean, We've come a long way from the top 10 list uh, that you enter your initials on, <laughs> on a pinball machine. And so uh, tournament integrations, there's so much in development with us right now. And next year is just going to be so much fun. It's the most fun I've ever had operating a business for sure. Amazing. And I am so grateful that we've had this opportunity today to, to dive into Scorbit and, and to learn some uh, just valuable tips on, on product and project management from you, Jay. And I'm very grateful for that. We'll definitely have to do a follow-up as some more of these releases come out. But Jay, for the audience that's tuned in right now, what is the best way for them to connect with you and to stay uh, followed up on all of the news? surrounding Scorbit? Sure. If you go to uh, scorbit.io, that's S-C-O-R-B-I-T dot I-O, you'll be able to see all of our updates. We have a blog um, with all of our announcements. Also, go to uh, the Google Play Store or the App Store um, 
and download our app. It's Scorbit, S-C-O-R-B-I-T, and start having fun. Awesome. Well, I will be downloading it right now. I hope all of you tuning in, head over to the App Store and download that app as well. And we are so grateful for Jay joining us. We're very grateful for all of you joining us. And we hope to see you on another episode of IoT Idols, Innovators to Watch, real soon. Hey, this is Critical CEO Ryan Cousins again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the IoT Idols podcast. If you're an accomplished engineer, inventor, product manager, or technology entrepreneur, and would like to be featured on an upcoming episode, please go to critical.com slash podcast slash apply. That's K-R-T-K-L dot com slash podcast slash apply. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or share it on social media and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you know someone you'd like to have us interview, let them know about the show or tag them on social media using the hashtag IoT Idols. We're always looking for great guests eager to share their stories with our audience. We're regularly posting new episodes, so make sure you subscribe to our podcast, follow us on social media, and join our mailing list at critical.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, be excellent.